welcome to another powerful message from One Life OK. We really hope you enjoy it. I just want to lay a little groundwork for this word that Cece has today. And um, I just kind of want to tell you a little bit about our process. You know, collaboration is um, what God's into right now. I want to, I want to do what God's into. You know, the weird thing about when God shifts and we don't shift, then we don't experience what he has for us because we didn't shift. So when you hear everybody out in the deep and they're hooping and hollering and screaming and going crazy and you're still standing on the shore, you better find you a little tugboat and get your rear end on out there to the deep. You know, part of what the enemy does is he he makes us become captivated in something that's already been solved. And when that captivates us, then we are not captivated by the one. You were meant to be captivated by something. You were meant to be so captivated with something that it oozes out of your pores and being and touches everything you touch. That's why we will know them by their fruit. And so this week I... I was just sitting, minding my own business, licking my little wound a little bit. You know, when you have something that hurts and you don't want it to hurt and you're thinking, why is this hurting? But in the middle of that, it was kind of a metaphor for me. Um, the Holy Spirit said to me, there was one leper that returned with gratefulness. And, you know, I've learned by now to say I have no idea what that means, even though I know some things about it. I, I have to position my heart, and this is really important to you new yielders. Are you, who's a new yielder? All of you are. Okay. You haven't been doing it as long as me. So you're new. How many know you're way better at it than you used to be? How many know you got a long way to go? I'm trying to think of all the questions I can ask that you can all raise your hands on. So then no one feels left out or anything. But this message today is for you. And there is something so powerful that I think it's going to be shocking to you at the end. And, you know, God just keeps doing that because he needs... He needs us to do what's on his heart. And he's unrelenting. This is how good God is. I don't, I don't know if you understand. He is unrelenting to have you fully. He is unrelenting to have you fully. That's all that matters to him. He doesn't care if you get Andy's later. He is unrelenting. He is unrelenting to have you fully. 
He's either God of everything. I hate to tell it to you, but if he isn't God of everything in your life, he is not God at all to you. He is not a part-time, half-time, half-God. He's a full-on, I'm Lord, I'm in charge, I'm the one, I'm the only one. You don't get to be in charge. You know, when he woke me up in the middle of the night, I was groaning. Because he just kept telling me what he longed for. I don't know if he's done that to you at two in the morning yet. But I just hear how much he longs for us to hear him in this love language that he has made for us. I love to, to read something in the Bible that I've read before. And that happened to me when I read the story of the leper. I'm going to get to that in a minute. But I wanted to start out with another thing that happened to me this week that currently, even if, as I say this, I have no idea how this all goes together, but I just know that he wants me to tell you these little pieces of the puzzle. Don't you love, I love how that he established this pattern for me where he gives me these pieces throughout the week and I can't even see how they go together. I can't see, I don't know why some of y'all are crying right now. I don't know why I'm crying right now. I don't understand all the way the spirit blows and moves, but he, his spirit when blows and it whispers, whispers across a heart for something that I can't even see. When I'm laying in my bed reading about the leper, I can't see what he's going to do, but I can feel it. I can feel that he is about to break forth with freedom over some people that have never experienced this level of freedom. And it's not by power. It's not by mind. It's not by my words, but it's by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will have you fully. That's God's intention. And I was reading this thing this week in this book. And I just felt like he wanted me to share with you this story in these little, and I actually made a couple of slides on it. I read this from John Bevere this week, and he said, spiritual growth is neither a function of time or learning. Come on. Surely that can change your mind right now. It's just a function of obedience. And let me just give you a clue about how this life of obedience works. It never starts with the big thing. I propose to you that for most of us, it starts with money. Because see, when I finally get the picture that I couldn't make a dime without him and that there isn't a penny that exists on the planet whether it's a peso or a penny or somebody other currency that god didn't make and that he actually has it all so wh why is it such a big deal to me that i act like i'm so sacrificial to give i know he's breathing on it because i mean just this week i I heard of somebody retiring and the enemy said to me, 62 is when people retire and you are 
three years away from that, what are you going to do? Where's your retirement fund? And I thought, see, I don't even worry about that. But I knew somebody, I knew he was in that moment. I could have, y'all probably would get in fear. I know he's telling me something about, he's telling me something about money. See, we've got to learn to discern why the Holy Spirit tells us stuff, and we've got to learn the difference between when the enemy is punking us and when the Holy Spirit is speaking. I propose to you that a lot more the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, and y'all assign it to the devil. And you're saying, get thee behind me, Satan, and the Holy Spirit saying, I got a message. We're so... We have to understand the process of getting good at this is through obedience. He is not going to change his process of speaking. He wants to speak to humanity the same. It's not some mystery. And he doesn't want to have to prove to you that it's him through a bunch of signs and wonders to convince you that that you can hear him. His sheep know his voice. You know, I was listening to Pam, and, she, and I want to quote the scripture she read. It was in, oh gosh, I think I pulled it up. Yes, it was in Revelations 12. And this is what she read. She read that they triumphed because they did not love and cling to their own lives, even when faced with death. And the next verse says, so rejoice, you heavens and every heavenly being. Why? Because we triumphed. Because how did we triumph? We didn't love ourselves so much that we replaced the love for ourselves where God's supposed to be. See, when I love God rightly, I love what he made. I don't even have to look in the mirror and hate on myself. I would be hating on God. But what's crazy is it says basically that God sent the devil to earth. The next verse, woe to the earth. Woe, woe, woe. Not said woe, but woe. And this is what it says. When the dragon, when the devil realized he had been cast to the earth. That's funny to me right there already. He hadn't realized he wasn't in heaven anymore. He was so full of pride. It says he set off to pursue women. I propose to you today that the enemy is after the seed. It didn't say he set off to pursue men, but women. Because why? Because they're the ones that give birth. Do you love that? And so when we don't love ourselves over God, it sets us up to triumph. 
And it sets us up the, to then see how the enemy and what he targets so that I don't have to be nervous. See, when you begin to understand your purpose, you, your whole life will make sense. You'll be like, oh, that's why he did that there. That's why he did that there. You don't have to be mad at anybody. They were clueless. Right? And so when I was thinking about that this morning, I was thinking about this part in this book that I'm reading. And he and I just want to give you these little snippets real quick. He was talking about some principles of spiritual warfare. And I think, I think at the end of the day, Probably the reason why he wants me to tell you this is because you're going to need to use this strategy to maintain this renewed and restored purity he's going to give you today. We'll see at the end how it all goes together. But this is what he, what he said in his book. Spiritual warfare is primarily a battle of perspective. The battle is whether we choose, say choose, turn to your neighbor. Say, God gave you choice. It's all it is, a choice. Quit making a choice be something else, like a curse or something. Quit making a choice. Act like, quit acting like it's bigger than it is. I chose to buy these shoes. No one held a gun to my head. I need these shoes. It was a choice to buy them in this color and yellow, but it was a choice to buy these. You make choices every day. The battle is whether we choose to see things the way God wants us to see them or the way the enemy wants us to see them. That's the battle. Spiritual warfare is a battle between light and darkness. Light and dark are not equal opposites. God and Satan are not in a battle of equal forces. You believe that, right? Yes. So the next thing should make sense. Light does not just have an advantage over darkness. The forces of good are not just stronger and they do not just outnumber the forces of evil. Agreed? But darkness is nothing but the absence of light. That's why it has no power. I propose your power of choice has more power than the enemy over you. That's why, that's why our soul, that's where choices are made. You know it's true. The spirit man is like going, let's choose this, let's choose this. Just choose. Have you ever been there in that moment where it's like, just choose to pray? And you're like, no, I think I'll call somebody and do something else. When you hear some news, you choose to complain about it. Bite your tongue. Bite it off if necessary. Until you are mature enough to not let every single thing you think fly out of your mouth just because you feel like it. And then you reap that later and you're like, well, where did that thing come from? Why am I so, why am I struggling? Your choice of words in a moment where the Holy Spirit was breathing on something, you cursed it. James said, out of that same mouth, it shouldn't be. 
Man, if we could ever, I do this all the time. I just, I get with the Holy Spirit and I look at a bird's eye view of my life. And he's like, see right there is what I'm doing right there. Right there is what I'm doing right there. And I guarantee you where I see him breathing, I also see the enemy attempting to destroy simultaneously. Because he hates momentum. He hates momentum. It's happening to y'all. I see it where God's about to move. You signed up for a team. You're, you decide you're going to get involved a little bit. Happened to some people in here that aren't here today. Where God breathed on something. He gave them a, a, an idea. He gave them a, an assignment. He gave them a challenge. And he was on it. It was a Kairos moment. I know three people that aren't here today that this week God gave them a Kairos moment. This was it today. And they didn't come. That's choice. See, when he's breathing on something, there is so much momentum. There is so much anointing. There's so much freedom. He's positioned. He moved a bunch of chess pieces around and he was breathing right then. And we missed it. And we wonder why it's hard. Choice is why it's hard. And you don't get those back. Now, God's merciful. He'll probably, he, he's unrelenting. I said it already. But see, that moment will never be captured again. And when you wake up enough to see those missed moments, that was my, that was the game changer for me. I saw that I missed it. He, he showed me a bird's eye view of my life. He said, I was right there. And you said, no. I was right there and you slept in. I was right there and you watched a movie instead. I was right there. I was going to give you freedom, but you stayed home. The enemy doesn't even have to do nothing. The enemy doesn't have to do nothing. Now, you might be offended at me right now in this room. But I am telling you the truth of how God works and how yielding works. And guess what? You don't get to pick some other plan. You don't get to say, well, you know, I yielded one time for two weeks and it didn't work out for me. No, yield for 30 years and we'll talk. You tell me when you got 30 years in the bank of yielding and we'll talk. Don't come talk to me about yielding. I've yielded a lot longer than you've been on the planet. And yielding means you don't get your way. Ever. Yielding means eventually you don't even remember you had a way. But that takes a really long time. It's not a two-week gig. Yielding is what the Holy Spirit anoints. Because you're so far out of the way, He can do what He's always wanted to do with your life, which is flow through it to change the atmosphere and territory where you're walking. And you're not going to get to change it with your good logic, with your five-minute so-so. You don't get to do that. He's either Lord over all or He's not at all. You are not your own. You have been purchased. You've been assigned to an army. You've been assigned to a tribe and you don't get to pick. I'm sorry that I have to tell you that today again, but you are not your own. You have been put into a tribe. You have been infused into a tapestry of something you did not work for. You did not pray for. You were not on your knee 
been invited to a ministry of reconciliation. My entire life is about restoring and restoring and restoring. And it is no compromise. There is only one standard. There is only one God and there is only one way. And you have to say today, I am not my own. I don't want to spend my whole life in a battle. Let me read you this amazing story this guy said. He said, light does not have to fight to dispel darkness. Did you hear me? Light does not have to fight to dispel darkness. Quit fighting the wrong battle. Light does not have to fight to dispel darkness. Jesus has already won absolute victory. If this is true, then why do so many people, even Christians, feel like they're in a losing battle? If dispelling darkness is as simple as turning on the light, then why doesn't it feel that simple? When Jesus called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and cure all diseases. Jesus gave his disciples power and authority to drive out demons, the ability and the right to remove the demonic. After his resurrection, Jesus released them to go make more disciples, spreading this power and authority to even more hands. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth. There's no other authority if you don't get it. There's zero authority remaining to be captured. Has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He didn't even say when you get it all together. See, God will put you where your maturity can change something in the room that you're at. If you're going to sit on the sidelines and wait till you get it all together, that's the enemy. God said, go. God said, go. Take what you've learned. Take how you become a disciple. Go make another one just like you. You, I, can I tell you, I am never going to put that sticker on you. It says, go. You're it. You're it. Yeah. It's not for me to decide. If you want help, there's help available. If you want counsel, there's counsel available. If you want wisdom, there's wisdom available. But go do something. Go do something with all the smorgasbord you've been eating for 10 years. He said, if this authority and power is available to all the disciples of Jesus, then why do so many Christians feel disempowered? And this is a story. A few years ago, I set up a small children's swimming pool in the backyard. It was less than a foot deep, but it was a fun and easy way to help my toddler survive the heat of Georgia summer.
We played outside until late afternoon and then quickly ran inside to get something to eat. All the swishing and splashing had caused my children to work up a monstrous appetite. I knew that leaving standing water was never a good idea this time of year. But for my children's requests and for a snack, we were growing increasingly urgent. So I planned to dump the water later. I woke up the next morning to make breakfast and spotted the little purple-white plastic pool through the window. Chiding myself for not just dumping it out the day before, I decided that I would wait until after breakfast to take care of it. I still was not all the way awake, you know. The next morning, I spotted the pool again and shook my head at myself, knowing that I should just go out right then and dump it so that I would not forget. It had rained all night, though, and the grass was all wet and sticky, and I would have to put my shoes on, and who wants to do that before he's had a cup of coffee? I could continue on to the list of days that went by with the pool still full in my backyard and excuses that kept me from just walking outside and dumping it over. But the number of days and the quality of excuses are both too embarrassing to include here. It is enough to say that after some time, I looked out the window and I saw that the water had turned a slinky shade of brown. I quickly walked out to see the magnitude of the damage my procrastination had caused. I stifled a gag as I saw hundreds of hundreds of mosquito larvae twitching, swimming in a patternless circle and fuzzy brown gunk forming the background of their revolting ballet. Disgusted by what I saw and frustrated at the knowledge that I could have easily prevented it. I stormed into the house and into the laundry room and I grabbed a bottle of bleach from the shelf and I stomped back out to the little pool and I dumped the contents into the filthy water and watched the little larva stop twitching. As my zeal faded, I looked at now the empty bottle in my hand. Effective as my plan had been, I now had a whole new problem. A pool full of bleach. Thinking that bleach water is probably not the best thing for grass and realizing that I was going to be late for work. If I did not get ready soon, I told my wife what I had done and asked her to not let the kids play in the pool. I planned to figure out how to clean up the mess I made as soon as I got home. Another few days went by. Each morning, I saw the pool through the window, and each morning, I thought of a good reason to not take care of the problem and do it later. A few more days went by, then a few more. One morning, I woke up and looked out the window. I saw that same sickly shade of brown in the little swimming pool. Confused and dismayed, I walked down to the pool and found it full of mosquito larvae again. The bleach chemicals had evaporated over time, making it so that the mosquitoes could breed in it again. I then dumped out all the water in one big heave, and then I went inside to get some soap and a sponge. 
silly as this story is, I think it's a fantastic metaphor for how we can understand the nature of the demonic and authority. I had all the power and authority that I needed to instantly dispatch every single one of those mosquito larvae, the bottle of bleach. I used that power. I killed every mosquito, but I did not change the environment that allowed them to thrive there. It's about environment. That This means that after I left, the mosquitoes came right back. Personal spiritual warfare is not a question of authority and power. You have authority. You have power. Jesus won both of those for you at the cross. Personal spiritual warfare is a question of environment. Not the one you live in, the one inside you. Demons are rarely the cause of our problems. They are the mosquitoes attracted to still water. The flies are attracted to open wounds. All the tactics and traps that I listed in this previous area are the, are, I decided I list them too, are completely powerless when they have no place to take root and grow. When there is no suitable environment for them. Darkness cannot overcome light, but it does not need to if we forget to turn the lights on. So today, Cece is going to come and she is going to spread the bleach of the Holy Spirit around on places that we've left dormant that have created an inability to walk powerful in this life with purity. Who would have known our greatest hitch in life would be have the audacity to live like we've never sinned? Who knew that shame and guilt would haunt us day and day and we would believe that we could not be pure. We could not be, and that when we went to step out in the anointing of the Holy Spirit, that the enemy would be right there, sitting on our shoulder, talking to us, and that our choices would come back to haunt us. But today is your day. Today, the Holy Spirit is going to unveil a freedom in purity, and you're going to need it for this next season. So don't let the enemy do anything to you while you're sitting here to disbelieve anything that's about to come down the pipe, because you can receive authority and power restored through purity today. Come on, Mendel. Holy Spirit, have your way. Have your way. Isn't that a powerful picture, that little swimming pool? I've, I've literally been there, I'm pretty sure. I don't know if it got as far as mosquito larva, but I've pretty much been there. But I, when uh, Tisa told me that story the other day, and I pictured immediately that, that we're walking around with these swimming pools in us, these stagnant, infested waters we're carrying around and we carry that into our environments. We try to minister with that going on inside of us. We try to walk powerfully. We try to do all of life with those 
picked those swimming pools in us. We probably have more than one, right? So just keep that in mind, that picture in mind. And uh, we're going to talk about that and the Holy Spirit's addressing that today. The cool thing about the Holy Spirit, I just don't even know if you guys understand how incredible the Holy Spirit is and how cool he is. It's the, he's the coolest thing ever. <clears throat> so Tisa had this word brewing that she shared and she was reading these books. But of course, I didn't know that and I hadn't read that. And then I went into spending some time with him um, on Friday and had my own encounter and got this prophetic message. And that's what I'm going to share. Now, this is a whole prophetic message. Okay. I want to, it's not even like a teaching necessarily. It's a prophetic message. And each of you are going to have to probably revisit it and put the puzzle pieces together for how they, they fit in your personal life. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the swimming pools, stagnant water, but what did he say? That it's a matter of perspective, right? So our first point of connection between what Tisa shared and my encounter on Friday was a perspective of grace. Now, I went out to spend some time with the Holy Spirit, and I got all set up, and I was all eager. And then immediately I started thinking all these nervous thoughts that are the same thoughts I always have every time I go to spend time specifically with Him. And it's like, well, what if I can't hear Him? And, you know, what if I'm manhandling the Holy Spirit? I mean, all these things started coming in. And I was kind of laughing at myself because I'm finally you know, a few years in thinking, this is ridiculous. <laughs> you know? It's the same thing every time, every time. <clears throat> so I just kind of smiled to myself and I started talking to Papa. And I want to read to you because literally what I wrote is about perspective. Okay. I said, Papa, what a privilege, what an honor to get and sit and talk with you this way under the beautiful sky you made and wind you're blowing my way. What an honor and a privilege. What a sweet, sweet gift you've given. In all the storm, all that storms and rages in this world at this time, you still provide the beauty of these moments. The delicately painted sky that is artistry in motion. The wind that can't be tamed or captured or recreated by any other. The marvel of deep colors, the sounds of spring, all proclaiming life. Life, life, no strife, no war, no conflict can tame the beauty you declare over each and every day. Who can stop you? No one, nothing. You proclaim your majesty and sovereignty in this way every single day. The beauty of your landscape on this earth has persisted despite man's endeavors and mistakes. Their false claims and attempt to mold the world according to their desired shapes never shout louder than your artistic desires for the day. Sun has still shined. Spring, spring has still sprung. Rain has still fallen. Wind has still blown. No matter the conditions of man's soul. Perhaps that is why you always tell me to look up when I feel overwhelmed by the details of life and the shouts of battle from wars raging inside, I can look up and easily see that you still reign over everything. 
You reign. You are not persuaded by things such as guilt or depression or fear or anxiety. You are the artist who cannot be stopped. The creator who never takes a day off. Sovereign and supreme over every living thing. Sovereign and supreme over every landscape, over every scene. You create, you paint, you tend to the garden you made. Intent to deliver the more of your glory every single day. Isn't that an amazing perspective in itself right there? Think about that. I'm reading this book where it takes place in the Civil War times and the landscape is literally being destroyed. I mean, all the trees chopped down. I mean, holes dug all through the land, literally destroyed, but it didn't stop the rain. The sun was still shining. Spring still came. Like, think about that. In creation, it doesn't stop. No matter what we as humanity have, has done, he doesn't take a day off. And what we have going on and the battles we have going on don't affect his creativity. He is intent on bringing the more of his glory every single day. Every single day. To continue on, I said, how silly to think that nervousness or anxiety or some position of my mentality could influence what you have to say. V, you can go ahead and put the next slide up. How preposterous to assume that I could shut the door or sew the curtain shut that you already tore. No, these things are the things of distraction at most. They hold Sorry, my computer just decided to jump up a foot. They hold no power. They're just insects attempting to live on your new growth. Small and inconsequential in the big scheme of things, no match for the majesty you intend to display. I can easily wipe them away and see your face. I can easily look up above the fray and see your glory shining in so many ways. You have your ear bent towards me constantly. You send your whispers to surround me, blowing in the wind all around me. The very light of the day is carrying your glance my way. I am surrounded by beauty, by glory, by the presence of your majesty. There's simply nothing better than living in this place. This place of awareness brings the perspective of grace. There it was, the perspective of grace. The perspective of grace. I had to write it like three times. It jumped off the page at me. The perspective of grace. This place of awareness brings the perspective of grace. Fasten my eyes always to this place. I said, Papa, I'm grateful for the experience. I'm grateful for our history. It's more than enough, more than I deserve. But I know it's only a taste. The fascinating thing about this perspective of grace is the current that pulls and invites, drawing us closer pulling us deeper, inviting us to dive into what's beyond the torn veil. It's as if there's always a voice whispering, there's more than this. There's more than this. In the midst of sheer wonder, as we gasp 
that desperate breath, finally able to see, able to breathe that rescuing breath, we hear the words, there's more than this. This rescue attempt is not limited to this. This train has more stops. It's going further than you thought. There's more beyond the small victory you have perceived, more beyond the safe landing you were desperate to receive. There's more, a promised land flowing with milk and honey, a triumph in glory. There's more, there's more, there's more than this. And I paused and I heard the Holy Spirit continue to say, he said, what would you offer for the chance to see as kings? Perspective of grace. What would you offer for the chance to see as kings? To live as royalty, to live and move and have your being as one with divinity. I offered it all to give you this gift. What would you offer to taste fully of it? And then the Holy Spirit had a dramatic pause. And I saw a picture of a flower, this picture that you see. And I thought, oh, right, a beautiful white flower it always makes me think of innocence and purity and his, the washing of his blood, right? And then I heard what the type of flower it was. And I don't know a lot of flowers, but I know a few. And I heard this one. I happen to know it's a white oleander. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it right. It's white oleander. White oleander, I happen to know, is poisonous. So I thought, Holy Spirit, what are you saying? Why are you showing me a picture of a beautiful, white, pure flower that I associate with purity, with innocence, and that's poisonous? Like, whoa, what, what's going on? And I asked the question, I know the Holy Spirit had me ask the question, is there such a thing as toxic purity? Okay, so that was a mind-blowing question, but that's the question here. Is there such a thing as toxic purity? So then I asked, well, what does the perspective of grace have to say about such a thing? I mean, think about it. How wouldn't, isn't that a beautiful flower? Doesn't it make you feel peaceful? And doesn't it look like purity? Doesn't it look like innocence? Like all things right? Beautiful growth in springtime? All things good, but it's toxic, poisonous, will kill you. What is he saying? What is the Holy Spirit saying? Well, he went on to tell me, he said, I gave you a land, a garden of grace with rich soil for planting, sure to sustain, sure to prosper, with all the nutrients needed for growing. But what are you planting? My grace is in the soil. The seed is of your choosing. Now, I did a, a Bible study years ago before I ever came to One Life, and it just marked me in this amazing way. It was called the Grace Walk Experience. I can't remember who, who wrote that book or that study, but it was, it was all about what grace really is. 
And I didn't come out of religion, so I don't know, but I kind of got the feeling that religion made grace sound like something different. But grace is the supernatural power and ability to do something that you would not ordinarily be able to do. That's the real definition of grace. Now, he's talking to us about having a perspective of grace. Okay. And he said he gave us a garden of grace, soil, and that the grace, that supernatural power to do what you couldn't otherwise do is in the soil. What you plant, you're going to have power. You're giving power. It has an, it has a built-in um, sustaining power that will prosper what you plant. And then he said, after another dramatic pause, the battle is not man to man. The fight is not with another. The war is mine it's my army that's fighting. Whose are you joining? And then we had another dramatic pause, and he said, what man has planted has not been undone. Okay, so he, I had to search out a matter, but he just dropped several nuggets there for us to look at. And there, this is kind of meaty. This is a very meaty message. So hang in there with me and really try to hear what is being shared, and it'll come together more so at the end, okay? So first of all, the first thing he says is this, this poisonous, beautiful white flower, right? And he asks the question, is there such a thing as toxic purity? Well, let's define what purity is. First, I think the one thing everybody thinks about with purity, automatically you go to sex for some reason. In our culture, it has to do with whether or not you're sexually pure, and I just have to say, the enemy is a total punk, and he has had this strategy in place in our culture for a long time, has tried to make sex be like the thing that could actually overpower grace, you know? Like, it's act somehow, sex is the thing, and if you're not pure in the area of sex, then you're just, every all grace is canceled for you, okay? It's, it's absurd. It's not as powerful as the enemy tries to make us think. It's just not. And because it is such a prevalent strategy of the enemy, just about every one of us, I'm sure, has been marked some way by feeling and feeling impure on that topic. I, I've met no one that I know of that is not has not uh, that has escaped that. No, it, the, the enemy is sneaky. Even the things that you think make you impure in this area aren't even a thing. Like, I mean, he, it doesn't even matter how you're, <laughs> it's just such a, there is no logic in this. Okay. There's no, it's, it's total deception. And so first we have to just break partnership with that, that, um, first of all, purity means a lot more than have things that have to do with sex and sex does not have the power to overpower grace or to rob grace. It is nothing. It's nothing more than those tiny little fly larvae in the pool. Okay. Easily taken out by bleach. Okay, so let's look beyond that. Purity in its, um, the Oxford Dictionary says that the definition of purity is something that ha is free from adulteration or contamination. So it's free from being adulterated or contaminated. That broadens the perspective a lot, doesn't it? Now, I looked up, I decided to look up what adulterate means. Adulterate means to render something poorer in quality by adding another substance, typically an inferior one. 
So what do we have? What do we talk about here a lot? Mixtures, right? We have a, we have a mixture. We all have mixtures of our teachings. We, some of our teachings has been, re, have been redeemed and we've learned his perspective, godly perspective that's in that alignment with his plumb line of truth. And there are other things that we're still operating out of other truths with things we think are true, right? And, but they're not. They, we have all been, um, another substance has been added to our operating system that is an inferior one that causes our operating system to be poorer in quality than what God made. That is what we're talking about really with purity. Okay. We are impure in the sense that we have truths operating in us, definitions, perspectives operating in us that have lowered our quality of our operating system. But another perspective on this, I looked up, um, purity in the Bible and the original language and thought I'd see what, how many definitions they had and how many different words. And I want to broaden this for you guys to connect to more. Okay. Pure being pure can also just be translated as being right. Rightness, feeling right. Don't we all want to be right? We want to be right. And I want to propose there are things in our lives that we think are we're doing good because we think they're right. And so we feel pure. We feel innocent. Right. So other other definitions, rightness, righteousness, accurate. Now, that's a big one for a melon because a melon likes to be accurate, not saying things willy nilly. That might mean something different. We like to be accurate. So purity could also be accuracy. Fair. If you're fair, are you, if you operate in fairness, what I did, what my actions were, were fair. That makes me pure. Okay. These are all mindsets I know we have, and there may be different ones that ping you particularly, but another one is just, I want not your fair, but then I operate with justice. What I did, what I chose, what I think is just, it's justified. It's in line with truth. In fact, it brings justice. Okay, we want that kind of purity. And we think we have it sometimes. Justice, righteous, righteously, righteousness, rightly. Here's another one. Vindication. Purity. The word purity in the original language also has the meaning of, is associated with vindication. So if you have been vindicated, you've been, your purity has been restored. Okay, that's one way you could see those connecting. If your purity was tainted and you've now been vindicated, then you've been made pure again. So I'd like to suggest that it's when we think overall that we are in alignment with truth, because we all want to operate, it's human nature that we want to feel right. We don't, people don't feel good when they're knowingly going around doing things that they know are bad. Even the worst criminal 90% of their day, they're doing what they think is right. We want to be right. We want this purity. So what is the Holy Spirit talking about when there's toxic purity? When the beautiful flower, the thing we think is beautiful and we would guard and we would grow that in our garden and we would call it good and even display it to our friends when that's actually poisonous. What is he talking about in our lives with that? 
Now that's the question that we're all going to have to ask ourselves is ultimately there's some, the Holy Spirit is trying to say there are things that you are partnering with that you think are as pure and white as snow, that their mindsets, their truths that you think are true, but they're not, they're actually poisonous. There are, and this is, this could come in in so many different forms. So please search this out, ask the Holy Spirit what he is talking about for you personally, not right now. We've got a lot more to cover. (laughs) Afterwards, ask him. Right now, just listen to the concepts, okay? And what he's saying about it. Okay, not right now. We have a lot to cover. Okay, there was another thing that he said in those few little snippets there. Um, The battle is not man to man. The fight is not with another. The war is mine. It's my army that's fighting. Whose are you, you joining? Now, this is a theme that's been coming up in my mind uh, for the past week or so quite a bit. I just realized the Holy Spirit was making it, flushing it out. And so I know it's something that's on his heart. But another way that we kind of operate with that rightness is when we see things going on, conflicts going on in our personal lives or just in the world around us, in our, in our um, you know, organizations, we, we try to, we try to decide whose side we're on in a conflict. There's some big issues out there right now, right? We decide, well, who, you know, what side am I on, on that? And I'm not saying that's inherently bad, but what we've got to realize and what the Holy Spirit and the spirit of alignment that he is bringing right now is trying to get us to, to influence and impress upon our hearts is that it is not a matter of whose side you're on. You are on God's side. You don't even have to figure out whose side of the debate on these topics you're on. It's not about figuring out who you defend or who you, who you protect. It's not about that. It's always first and foremost have to be, has to be about God's army. Whose army are you joining is what he asked us. Now, this verse had, had come to me in a roundabout way, but Joshua 5, um, 13 and 14, I'm reading in the message. While Joshua was there near Jericho, he looked up and saw right in front of him a man standing holding a drawn sword. Now, Joshua at this point in the story is he's about to go into battle. Okay, they've just crossed over the Jordan River and they are preparing to go into battle. They know, they see Jericho, they know that the walls have to come down. They're supposed to invade and take that land. He's about to go into battle. Obviously warfare's on his mind, right? And he sees a man standing in front of him holding a drawn sword. Joshua stepped up to him and said, whose side are you on? Ours, ours or our enemies? And the man said, neither. I'm commander of God's army. I've just arrived. So Joshua fell face to the ground and worshiped. And he asked, what orders does my master have for his servant? That has got to be our perspective. It is crucial at this point in time. We cannot look at the arguments from either side of anything going on in our lives. We need to fall on our face and recognize that God's army is bigger than both of the sides. God has a plan. As we said, he wants to pour out more and more of his glory every day. God is doing a thing. He's not just ambivalent like, well, when you feel like it, I'll come down and do something. He's doing something. He's 
operating and carrying out his plan. So the battle is not man to man. The fight is not with another. The war is mine and it's my army that's fighting. Whose are you joining? This is why we can't, we, this is a, suggest an area where toxic purity, okay, comes in. Because if we look at a situation and we think we, we use our logic to judge what's right or whose side we should be on, then we're operating quite possibly in something that goes against what God wants to do right then. I mean, that's a real scenario. Real scenario. It's real. Okay, so this is another, so this is all going to be worked together. Okay, this is a principle about God's army and our position. We should be saying, what does God's army need me to do right now? What is my commander saying to me? What does my master have for his servant? That's our process. Okay, so the next little nugget. I knew that I knew the flower. I knew what this flower was. And I knew it was poisonous because many moons ago, back in the late 1900s, I read a book called White Oleander. Now, that's the only reason I knew this flower, because I'd read this fiction novel. I'm not promoting the book. It's not even a pleasant story. Okay. But something I was reading back then. Now, I knew this was significant to the Holy Spirit. So I looked up and refreshed my memory about what this book was actually about. And I knew the Holy Spirit was emphasizing it. Now, the story is basically about an orphan's journey that resulted from a scorned woman's revenge. A mother sought to restore justice through her, through her own means and ended up in prison, turning her daughter into an orphan left to navigate a confusing mixture of modeling and identity. Okay. That's, that's basically what the book is about. So the Holy Spirit began to speak to me about why he was telling me about this book. He said, the generations before you sought to restore their purity. Okay. Remember the vindication thing by battling man-made strongholds, systems, and abuses. The purity they pursued was toxic because of what they thought it would come through. Their battle is not against and was not against man or the wrongs done by men against them. Therefore, the battle they fought, the war they waged, the seeds they planted in their garden of grace grew something that was truly poisonous. This aspect of what they called restored purity is still alive in your fire. So let's listen, think back about the definitions. This aspect of what they called vindication or rightness or justice or brightness is still alive in you. It has not been uprooted. It is still a driver and a toxic flower in the garden you are growing. Okay. Holy Spirit is really, really helping us out here. Just to give you a heads up, he's saying today that he is prepared to do a miracle in your life. And I'm going to prove that in just a minute. But this is no small matter, okay? He's saying, hey, you've got a toxic flower in your garden. It needs to be uprooted. You don't see it for what it is. You think it's pretty. You think it's valuable. You think it's beautiful. You think it's something to guard and to protect and to even covet, to want, to plant more of, to propagate in your garden. It's not. It's toxic. It's poisonous. 
Your perspective of grace is skewed by a toxic flower. Okay, so at the beginning, remember, you gave us this perspective of grace. Battling the fly-infested swimming pool and spiritual warfare is about perspective. Perspective is of grace. Perspective of grace is what we need for that spiritual warfare. We've got a toxic flower skewing our perspective of grace. It was called beauty. It was called victory. And it was given to you as part of your identity. But this gift bears a weight that you must now maintain. You were taught to perceive it as purity, something to keep and maintain. But it runs now as poison in your veins. This teaching surrounds and adorns walls that must come down. It's the first ones that you encounter after taking ground. The first to be kicked out of the promised land that I gave you. Do you see these walls as protectors or the enemy they maintain? Do you see these definitions as something to aspire to? Or do you sense the stench of their death wage? Ask yourself this, what makes me pure? What makes me right? What makes me vindicated? What makes me fair? What makes me just? What makes me good in my relationships and how I do life? That's what he's asking us to look at in ourselves. This is something we wouldn't catch without him. He says, ask yourself this, be honest and truthful with all that you believe, and then ask me to show you which of these, if any, came from me. It's an invitation. You're all with me so far? Okay, there's more. So I knew that, and this white oleander had even more significance than that, than the book, right? So I looked up to see if there was any possible mention of it in scripture. It turns out there is a ton of white oleander, mostly mentioned in very old historical texts and like uh, Jewish, um, the Talmud and the original Torah and all this kind of stuff and, and studies that were done probably in the 1800s. I don't know. Now, my, my, my approach in this is to get the prophetic message that the Holy Spirit is pouring out, not accuracy, of course. Okay, it's about what does the Holy Spirit highlight to me when I'm doing, when I'm searching out a matter. It's not about what accuracy. Okay, so look at, listen to what he said. This teaching surrounds and adorns the walls that must come down. Guess where? Oleander grows in abundance. Jericho. It is known to grow in abundance around Jericho. Now, if you know the story of Jericho, right? Jericho is was one of the most interesting things I've learned from reading about this is that it was the first place that the Israelites came to on, in their promised land that had to be um, overtaken. So if, if you remember, God says, I'm going to give you a promised land. It's yours. I've already given all of your enemies into your hands. So no, now go take the land. So it didn't mean that you wouldn't f- face any enemies. Yeah, yeah. He just said, I've already given you victory over them. So go and do it. Yes. Yeah. Go do it. 
go and do it. So at this point in the story, there's so many interesting points, okay, that this oleander leads us to. But at this point in the story, Joshua has just led the people across the Jordan, which God also parted, right? It's amazing. He didn't just part the Red Sea. He also parted the Jordan for them to walk across on dry ground. And they entered their promised land in that moment. Okay. A couple of interesting things here. Once they crossed over into this area, just right outside of Jericho, right there on the other side of the Jordan, they began to eat the fruit and the food of the land and manna stopped at that point. There was no more. They'd been living on manna for like 40 years, right? At that point, they had to live off of the land from that day forward. They had entered into their promised land. And I just want to propose to you, there are things on this journey. When you enter into this journey with God, he takes you from a place of immaturity. He rescues you from Egypt and he walks you through a wilderness and he delivers you and brings you into your promised land. But there are things that you have to do and yield to along the way. So the things that you, that he provided in the wilderness and the things that you knew back in Egypt are no longer going to feed you. There's new fruit to be had at this point of your promised land. Today, when you woke up, you stepped into a new place of your promised land. You're on a new ground. It's a new day, as she prophetically said earlier, God's doing a new thing. You're in a new place in your promised land. You cannot just look to the, what fed you in the past to sustain you in the new moment that God's brought you to. Another interesting story about Joshua that comes in that, that I just know is the Holy Spirit's emphasis here about Jericho, I mean, is the story of Rahab. And if you remember, Rahab was the prostitute woman, whatever they want to call her, various versions of scripture, who lived inside of Jericho. And when Joshua sent the spies over ahead of time, they go in and she um, hides them from being captured, right? Now, it, this came up to me in a roundabout way, um, this story, then this new emphasis on it, that it says that Rahab decided to help them because they knew, she knew that God had already given them the land. And all the people were scared because they already knew about him, about God parting the Jordan River, right? And, but he, he, they knew and they were scared, but that didn't mean they stopped fighting. That didn't mean they weren't going to defend their land or try to have their way, right? So isn't it interesting that Rahab has lived in this community probably her whole life? It's her world. Her family's there, all of her friends, everything she's already always known her way of life, and she had to choose in that moment to help somebody that was called an enemy. They called the Israelites an enemy. They called God's people an enemy. Now, if you put yourself in her shoes and realize she had to make a decision in that point to be a traitor to her people. She had to make a decision to say, nope, I know what God's doing, and I believe God is going to have his way over this side, these two sides. What did the man say with the sword? I'm not on either side. He wasn't on Jericho's side or the Israelite side. He's in God's army. This woman knew that. And I want to propose to you that on your journey, you have to make those same decisions. And we will be in positions where we have to make that same decision. Even though this person on my left 
tells me that this is wrong and this person over my right tells me something is right. I have to do what God tells me. I have to do what God's doing. When I respond in that moment, when I get on my face and say, what is my master asking me to do in this moment? That has to be our choice every time. We have to align with that because it's in those moments where it will look contradictory to everything you've been taught, everything you've known, everything that makes sense to you logically, where God will ask you to choose something that is contradictory to all that. So can you do that? Can you make that decision? If you start practicing making that decision in all your, at the, the little things you face in everyday life, then you'll practice, you'll be respond, your response to just fall on your face and say, God, what do you say about this situation? What is true to you in this situation? What do you want me to do today in this moment? Because what you told me to do yesterday may not even be what you want me to do today. This is a critical position for the body of Christ in this season, in this point in time. We have got to do things that way. We can't base it on history, on previous teachings. The only thing, the only thing that even makes any sense, okay, is to fall on our faces and ask God, what do you want me to do right here? We've got to be ready to be Rahab's. Okay, so of course she was, she was saved. She and her family. I want to propose that probably her whole family didn't even agree with her. But she was the head of that household. And she said, if you want to come with me, you can get into my house right here and don't leave. They, that's what was really her instructions. Keep your family in your home and nobody will come. To, no harm will come to them. And they were rescued and they became new Israelites. They automatically were incorporated into the, the army of God, God's people. Because she followed what she knew God said, not what everybody around her was saying. And she did, she did that exact thing that, that Joshua's experience described to us. I'm not on either side. I mean, we all want to say God's on our side, right? When we pray, we're like, well, I know you're on my side because you love me. And he's literally up there saying, yeah, I'm not even on your side. But I'm not on their side either. I'm just doing something different. You can't even see it. You can't perceive it. You're do I'm doing a thing. And most of the time in your life, you're not even going to know what the thing is I'm doing. It's not about whose side we're on. It's about, are we aligned with him? Are we joined up with his army and following his instructions? Now, it was interesting, if you remember the quote that uh, Tisa shared, I wrote it down from John Bevere. Spiritual growth is neither a function of time or learning. It's a function of obedience. Oh, the story of Jericho, of course, the most prominent one is that the people of Israel, uh, they marched around for seven days and the walls came down, right? They did something that made no sense, but they were obedient. God told him what to do and they did it. Not just Joshua, but everybody walked around as instructed. Everybody walked in unity Six days without saying a word, just sounding the trumpets. I mean, strict obedience to what was said, despite how it made no sense to anybody. That is obedience. That is spiritual growth. Now, I want to propose to you that there were previous tests of that nature from the past generation in the wilderness that didn't go so well. Remember? I mean, there's tons of stories 
why the entire first generation of Israelites that were rescued from Egypt never entered the promised land because they had this experience and they couldn't obey. Now, my most favorite, there's one, um, there's two more, actually, I'm going to share two more mentions of Oleander in scripture that I found. One of them is mentioned in Leviticus. There is some, there in Leviticus, he give, God is giving specific instructions about all the different feasts, the feasts of, you know, the Passover and all the feast of the tabernacles and day of atonement, all the very specific instructions. And, and that includes some different, what types of tree branches, what types of greenery to get and do what with, right? It's very specific. One, there's one particular part in Leviticus that there are three potential plants that all these scholars have decided could have been the ones that God was talking about. And one of them is oleander. It's one of three. So oleander was mentioned in the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the Feast of Booths, which I can remember more so because of the chosen, because they demonstrated it in the chosen. But what was that? Just the short version of that feast, what that particular part of it was a reminder of the people lived under the covering, you know, cloud by day, fire by night in the wilderness that God brought them through. So literally the Israelites would make a temporary shelter and live in it for seven days to follow these, this instruction. Oleander was involved in that. Now, all of that, the, I'm just going to jump ahead to all of that, the, all of those feasts that are mentioned in Leviticus and were given as specific instructions are prophetic. They are a prophetic picture of the move from the desert to the promised land. So I want to propose to you that that just even stood out to me because we are in the process of moving into and taking our promised land individually, but culturally on a bigger scale, even in the world, we're moving into our promised land. And so this is significant. Oleander is significant. Your toxic purity, your toxic rightness is very significant to this transition into the promised land. Now, the last one I'm going to share um, is an exodus and it is the most powerful, most beautiful one. Now, Moses, of course, we're going back in time, right? Joshua is ahead of time. They've already crossed over the Jordan into the promised land. Well, let's back up about 40 years and to an exodus. Moses has just led the people out of Egypt. Okay. They have just crossed the Red Sea. They just escaped Egypt and they cross the Red Sea. God does this miraculous thing and they walk across the Red Sea on dry land and the enemy is wiped out right behind them, right? I mean, it's such a dramatic story about God's protection and provision when he's on the move. And they enter into the wilderness and they're, I want to point out, they are immature believers at that point. That is representative of, of us being just barely out of bondage or barely out of slavery, okay? You're brand new to the body of Christ. You're brand new to the salvation and all that, think about that elation you felt and how free you felt when you first got saved. And you're like, man, God's the best. And you're like worshiping with everything you have. And that's exactly what happens at the beginning of Exodus 15. They're, they're celebrating, they're singing praises to God and declaring his victory and how powerful he is over them. And then 
they realized they'd been walking for a couple of days and hadn't had any water, hadn't come across any water. For three days, they hadn't found any water to drink. And by then, even though they'd already been complaining, okay, in, in immaturity, we complain a lot because we're not comfortable with things. So in immaturity, we complain a lot because we're just not comfortable. I couldn't believe it, but by this point in the story, okay, they just crossed the Red Sea. They just saw their enemy defeated. But before they even crossed the Red Sea, they, they complain about how there's nowhere for them to be buried. They might as well have just stayed in Egypt so they could be buried if they were going to be killed. I mean, just so negative. <laughs> so negative. <laughs> okay, so they're three days in and they're walking. They haven't had new water, so they're complaining because there's no water. Well, Egypt was very plentiful. They had cisterns of water. They were never, water was never not available to them. And so they're like, what the heck, God, you know, you just, you sold, you brought me out of slavery, but now I can't even have any water. Like what gives, you know, like this is ridiculous. So I want to propose they're missing the comfort of bondage and slavery. And we need to admit there are some things that were comfortable about it. In this story I'm reading about the civil civil war times, you know, there's slavery, of course, going on. And and this this slave owner, basically, she was the daughter of the slave owner, but she doesn't like slavery. And she wanted to give the slaves the choice, a choice at a certain point in time. And the slave was like, no, this isn't how it works. No, you tell me what to do. I don't want to make the choice. You tell me what to do. I, this isn't how this thing works. I don't want to make the choice. And so she was great because she said, well, then I order you to make a decision. I thought that was brilliant. <laughs> but we were comfortable, right, in our bondage and in slavery. There's things that we've gotten really comfortable with. And I keep saying, you know, we said this, the word of the year, that we are going to discover at some point in time that we were in more bondage and more slavery, enslaved to fear, than we even are aware of right now. But we have been in bondage, enslaved to the spirit of fear and don't even realize it. And there's a lot of things we're comfortable about it. We're comfortable with in living that way. And this is the kind of thing God's trying to show us right now and say, hey, you're real comfortable with this. You like this, this way of looking at justice and what's right and what makes you good and pure and innocent. You like this. You're comfortable with it. But it's poisonous. And it's, it's poisonous for what we're doing. It surrounds the walls that you have got to march around and tear down. It's about obedience. So I want to paint, uh, connect you to the story just a little bit more. They're walking around. They experience lack, right? They experience not having the water that makes them comfortable. But what about... Let's connect it to ourselves and what we're talking about today with spiritual warfare. You've been, you know, broken free by Jesus, your new believer, and you're like, man, this is the best. I'm finally free. Life is going to be a bed of roses, right? And then you get attacked. You get into spiritual warfare. And you're like, what the heck is going on? This is not what I thought I signed up for. And then that leads us down a hole a whole um, cascade of thoughts and feelings. Okay, so I'm going to be real here for a minute. And this is, I think it's funny. I hope it doesn't offend any people with the religious spirit, but I'm just going to go ahead and share it. 
Okay. So a week or so ago, I was being bombarded with negative thoughts. I mean, I, it was like I'd barely get my head above water, just blasted over and over and over. And so after several days of this, one of my coping mechanisms for that tends to be a little bit of sarcasm, right? If Even just to myself, in my own head, I'm a little sarcastic. And so I was being bombarded this one day, and I heard some other story, and all I could hear was everything negative through it. And I was just like, good Lord, you know, it's like felt like another dagger in my back. And this sarcastic phrase came to me. This is from the world, okay? <laughs> I can't can say this. It was, life's a bee, then you die. Okay? That, that was my perspective. Honestly, I, that's, that was my self-talk. Like, yep, there you go. But I had the presence of mine. It's probably the Holy Spirit throwing me a lifeline. But he was like, well, what's the godly version of that statement? Like, and I was like, is there a godly version of that, you know? Immediately, I heard the scripture, in this world, you will have troubles, but take heart, I will overcome. I have overcome. And I was like, oh my gosh, that is the godly version of that phrase. That is, that's it. I, I was stunned. I didn't even share it. I didn't even tell Tisa about this for like a day because I was so ashamed of my negativity. <laughs> But I, and I didn't. I figured it might upset her. But I have to read the read the verse, John sixteen thirty three. Go and read it, okay. And everything I've taught you, so that the peace which is in me will be in you, and will give you great confidence as you rest in me. For in this unbelieving world, you will experience trouble and sorrows. But you must be courageous, for I have conquered the world take heart, I've conquered the world. And so again, this is just a great perspective shift because when we're immature and we encounter spiritual battle, we're just so offended by the fact that there's a nasty pool in our yard with fly maggots and all that stuff in there and larvae that we're, we're just so offended with them. Well, God's not who he thought, who I thought he was, you know, he's not coming through like he's supposed to. And, and this, well, I must just need to take the reins back a little bit more because clearly I can't trust him to make all the decisions because look where we're at. Look what's happening. You know, <laughs> we have so many ridiculous responses. But he says, take heart. I've overcome the world. He says right there, you will have trouble. The fact that you have trouble is not, um, does not, you know, go against the gospel. <laughs> it's not like it's a surprise. He says, you're going to have trouble. You're going to have sorrow. You're going to have difficulties. And in the voice, it says, you'll be plagued at times. You'll be plagued at times. That sounds rather severe. <laughs> you know, we would all just do good to recognize that's part of the walk. It's just part of the journey. It doesn't mean that God's not who he said he was or that we're doing anything wrong even. But what we need to do is recognize how to partner with the part that he's overcome the world. Everything that Tisa shared on the front end, that's what we need to get, get right, right? It's spiritual growth is neither a function of time or learning. It's a function of obedience. So they the ex, in Exodus 15, they cross the Red Sea. They're immature. They've, they're undergoing this lack of water. And they're complaining. And they finally come up to this little pool of water. And it's bitter. 
It's bitter water. So can't you just hear yourself? Good grief. Three days with no water. I finally get some water and it's nasty. I can't even drink it. What kind of God are you? I mean, can't you hear yourself? So in this story, God tells Moses, do you see that branch over there? Pick that branch up, throw it in the water. So he obeys. Guess what branch it was? Oleander. It is an oleander branch that he threw into that water and God performed a miracle and turned that bitter water into something sweet. A poisonous flower. There was a guy quoted from, like I said, back in the 1800s sometime. He said that it was a miracle within a miracle because he threw something bitter into bitter water and it made it sweet. This is the miracle that God is saying he's ready to do for us right now. Right now. He's ready to do this right now. You can claim it personally. He's going to do it right now. Right now. He's inviting us to do just that, to recognize. We've got to recognize what is our branch of oleander? What is our branch of toxic rightness, toxic justice, toxic, you know, validation, all of those things. He's saying, take that thing, throw it into the swimming pool of infestation that you're carrying around with you that actually attracts spiritual warfare. And I will heal you of that. I will turn that nasty pool into something sweet. I will turn it into something sweet. It says in several of the commentaries at that point in the story that it was the first of the tests for the people and the first of the demonstrations to the people of God about how this journey was going to work. In Exodus in 15, Exodus 15, 26 to 27, in the voice, if you will listen closely to my voice, the voice of your God, and do what is right in my eyes, not somebody else's, Do what is right in my eyes. Pay attention to my instructions and keep all of my laws. Then I will not bring on you any of the plagues that I did on the Egyptians, for I am the eternal, your healer. Very next verse. Then they traveled on to an oasis where there were 12 fresh water springs, and 70 palm trees with dates. So they set up camp there next to the waters. God demonstrated how he would provide. It was through the things that didn't make any sense. He said, you can approach the bitter waters. You can think that's all you've got. That's all I've provided for you. If you just do what I asked you to do when you bump up against that nasty circumstance, that nasty thing that's happened in your life, that bitter thing that sounds foul, it looks foul, it smells bad, it's irritating, it looks dangerous, it looks nasty, all of that stuff. If you'll just do what I say, just pick something up I'm telling you about, throw it in the pool and I will turn it into something sweet. And then I will lead, the very next step is I will lead you to a place that has 12 fresh water springs, 70 palm trees with dates. There's my final word. Moses threw the branch into the bitter water to sweeten it. It's proposed that the oleander branch that God instructed Moses to throw into the water, it was an oleander branch. Today we discuss the bitter stagnant water of an unattended pool that attracts flies. 
as being representative of places in us where we have experienced spiritual warfare. The warfare occurs not because of light's inability to overcome darkness, but rather because of a pool that we have not exercised our power and authority over. We have neglected a place in us that attracts the darkness, attracts and gives access to the enemy's attacks. We have full power and ability and authority to rid ourselves of that foul, bitter place and thereby render the enemy ineffective in warfare. But we don't. We haven't. Why not? Perhaps it's because we have wrongly defined it and we actually protect it. We say that's a beautiful flower. We say, I'm going to keep that in my garden. Perhaps we thought it was something good rather than evil and failed to recognize that it even needed our attention. We haven't even paid any attention to that thing because it looks good. It's good to us. We don't even ask anybody about it. We don't need to pray about it because it looks good to us. We think that's, it's a good thing, right? Perhaps he's calling us today to recognize our partnership and protection of a toxic purity, a toxic rightness that we cling to. Perhaps he's saying today that he's ready to perform the miracle that takes the toxic in our lives and turns it into proof of his provision and care. I just want to propose to you, God wanted to prove to the people of Israel how he was going to care for them. There's story after story after story with Moses, with Joshua. He wants to prove to us how he's going to take care of us. He wants us to have that confidence. He wants us to experience it, to see it, not to be something that we blindly hope for, but that we know, that we know personally. That means we're going to have to do the obedient thing when we walk up to that stagnant pool of water. That's how you experience his goodness and you come to know him in that way. And then you have confidence and you can take heart knowing that he overcame the world. He's inviting us into an exercise of obedience that will speak of how he intends to lead us into the fullness of our promised land. It means the next stop on our journey is the place of abundant blessing and fruitfulness where what seemed to be lacking in our journey out of Egypt suddenly becomes abundant, a land flowing with milk and honey. Let's welcome Tisa to come close us out. Wow. Shooty just leaned over to me and she said, and today is June 12th, 12 palm trees, palm trees. So let me tell you, the rest of the story, I get to be the bookend today. So on the day last, early last week, when I told her that God revealed to me this story of the lepers, that's the day she was life as a bee. Okay. So I told her that day, but I, I researched it more. And so then I told her on Friday morning, I said, listen, this is what the Holy Spirit's breathing on right now. I said, there's just something about this story. Let me tell you this story. And so I said, I think it's in Luke. The one I read was in Luke 17, I think. I think it's, uh, yeah, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it's Luke 17. So here's the story. So Jesus ran upon these 10 lepers. And when he saw them, he said to them, go and tell the priests, go and see the priests, because that was the law from back in the days of when she was reading about when they came out of Egypt. Let me help you. One life 
is your promised land. But in the promised land, it's the ownership of stewardship. You can't act like a slave in your promised land because nobody else is going to take care of your property that you own. So quit trying to go find your promised land and own what is in the promised land God led you to. And so in the story of the lepers, he said, go tell the priest because that's what they had to do. And Jesus was, was telling them what they did. Listen, it said this on their way. One guy noticed he had been cleansed. That word cleansed means that he was made pure of his leprosy. When he returned to Jesus, it said he fell down flat on his face and he said, and and he said, and, and Jesus said to him, were there not 10 that were cleansed? And it said, and Jesus made him sozo. Jesus sozoed him, made him well. That word well means sozo in the Greek. It's different than the word cleanse. That means that the outer happened on their way and him noticing something had occurred to him, made him return. And then he was cleansed from the inside. And that's really what he, when I told her that she went on and the Holy Spirit told her this entire word. See, because that that's an example of she could have stayed bitter and mad that she was getting tormented. Life's a bee, but she didn't. She turned and see, that's how simple it is for all of us. Listen, in this room, I, he was just sitting there telling me these are the different places that we have this poisonous flower within our own mist, within our own thinking. And so we have to realize even when you get truth and you feel better, and you look better, there's still another level of healing that it will restore you back to your ability to be the owner in stewardship because that's what he's coming back to reward. Is that when you're not stewarding well, you're not going to get the reward. And that's really what this life's about. It's not about anything else. It's not about getting a Dr. Pepper. It's not about getting a relationship. It's about stewarding the thing he has given you to own. And so that's why this word is so timely and powerful is because it's really a message of will we return back to Jesus until we've been sozoed, until we've been made perfectly clean from within. And I don't know how many times that's going to be for you. You know, where were the other nine? They're on their way to the priest. They were on their way back to do what the religious spirit required. But only one returned back to the Savior, the healer, to really get the healing. There's levels of healing and restoration in everything. Don't settle for just your leprosy being gone. You know whether you're healed from the inside out because you know whether what we're talking about today, whether you can believe it all. If you can't believe and you can't see everything we're saying, I know we're a deep well, but if you can't, then you've got some or oh, lander or the that flower, that poisonous flower. No, I can say it. Don't try to say it. That poisonous flower somewhere in your thinking. 
It's just that simple. This is this is his love. He's just like, man, I've already you you can walk around uh, you can walk through this land of, of freedom in this land of pride. It's dry ground. You don't even have to do anything. See, the other thing he was telling me is we have taken even the Bible and examples in the Bible like walking around seven days, and we try to reproduce all of those events in our own life. Those were just what we're saying today. They were principles. What was the principles? They heard God and they did what he said. They didn't just go take that root the rest of their life and throw it into every ditch of water. That's what we would do. And we would paint it on a canvas and we would write a book about it. We'd put it on a shirt and we would carry that root around everywhere we went. Where the next time he might want you to touch it with your toenail. That's because we don't want to be so close to him to see what he's looking at and do like he says. We just want to hear a principle, a rule, some law that somebody else made so I don't have to personally listen. And I'm telling you, don't make somebody else be your Holy Spirit. But if somebody comes to you and they have a bitter root, don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. Tell them. Help them. Say you've got this poisonous thought in your head and there isn't any way that you can make it true. There's no way you can make that true. Only the Holy Spirit can add his little thing to it and heal it in you. And that's really what he's saying today. And so that's the challenge. Do not let this word fall to the wayside. If you will take this, it will heal things in you that you struggled with your whole life. It'll heal thoughts and ways and beliefs that you have. It'll heal things that someone said over you, that someone that was scared to death trained you to do, to train you to believe. I'm telling you, Mendel is working and, and her freedom is your freedom. She is working to be quicker about that tormenting spirit because that can get on her for several days and we can even wrestle around about it. And so the same thing happens to y'all here. That guy, Blake, he was saying that when he was growing up, he could see the demonic on people. He could see that a demonic spirit was somewhat, and they would make them hunch over, and he could see the positioning of it. And he said he didn't know what to do with any of that. He thought, either I'm crazy, right? What was the other thing I told you he said? Oh, I'm crazy, the devil's after me, or I have a gift. I have no idea how to, how to use it. And it was always the latter. <laughs> you have these gifts. There's seers in the room where you see angels and the demonic and stuff, and you don't know what to do with it. There's people who are prophetic in the room. There's people who are feelers in the room. There's people who experience all kinds of stuff. But the truth of the matter is everything about the supernatural has to be put in line with what God says about it. And so we are not powerless and so, come on, let's stand for a minute. So, Papa, right now, I just release your grace, your perspective of grace on our lives right now. No one in the room will be ashamed to look at this poisonous flower that was not probably of their own making. But even if it was of our ma own making, we just say right now that we release your perspective of grace to show us 
Tell him that you want to see it. You want to be different. And Papa, I just bless Cece today for how that she meanders through all of that information to, to bring us this cultivated word. And I just pray that even as our small groups even delve into it more, that it'll be more revelation. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from One Life OK. For more information, please visit us at onelifeok.com. Okay